0: Well, we're continuing on in this series on uh, relationships, Relationships 101, and um, I'm kind of excited about this, not just so that we maybe learn a few new things and be reminded of a few old things. I'm hopeful that in this series, as we're just talking about the basics of doing relationships, that you might actually experience some personal breakthroughs in your own family, your marriage, and your friendships, and your relationships with other people. That's the whole point, and we want that to happen because Doing um, relationships well is the most important thing in life. That's one of the things we talked about last week. There were some other foundational truths that we touched on last week as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13. There is a best way and uh, several less than best ways to do relationships. Another truth was the key ingredient to doing relationships well is love. We also talk about how doing relationships well doesn't come naturally, and we also talk about how what we need is more than an instructor who will instruct. We actually need an instructor who will enter into life with us, who will take us by the hand. And if you missed last week's message out of 1 Corinthians 13, you may want to go back and listen. But we're going to continue talking a little bit this morning about love because we have not exhausted the subject. And again, it is the key ingredient. We need to get this right because as we talked about last week, without love it doesn't count. In 1 Corinthians 13, we saw that there's this, this math going on, 7 minus 1 equals 0, it, it, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames, if I have all these seven things, but I'm missing the most important thing, if I'm missing one, seven minus one, it's nothing. It's zero. And that's not just how it is with God. If you don't have love, it doesn't count with God. But that's not how it is just with God. It's how it is with everybody. In the, in the first service, I, I didn't mention this last week because Gina was here. But in the first service, I did talk about how, you know, if it was Valentine's Day, no, I I just totally forgot, and she got on to me, so I had to tell her the whole illustration all over again. But I I mentioned that if it were Valentine's Day and I gave some flowers to Gina, she may say, well, why did you do do this? This is so wonderful. Imagine if I said, well, I had to. It's Valentine's Day. Or I take her out to a nice restaurant. She said, Ernest, this is so good. Why? And I say, well, people got to eat. You know, come on. Or I give her a diamond ring and she says, Oh, this is so beautiful. Why? And I say, Well, because last year you didn't like the handy vac and the year before you didn't like the deep fryer and I was just trying to stay out of the doghouse. How'd I do? So oh, I really like it. Great. Can I go to bed? Now, you know, if that's my response to her, if I give her all these wonderful gifts, would you be surprised if she was not moved? Would you be surprised if actually she was a little, little bit upset, even if I did these wonderful things but without love? What do you think? God's any different? Are you any different? Without love, it doesn't count. Now, speaking of gifts, by the way, some of you may have known this already, but we had our 25th anniversary, and I want to show you what Gina painted. If you haven't seen this, can you put that up there? She painted this picture for me. And uh, it's beautiful, And um, but but it wouldn't have meant anything without love. Now, the painting is only about like that big, okay? No, it's not really. It's, it's been like that. Uh, be- just kidding. She's not here. I can say things. Uh, Beautiful. But you know what I'm saying. Without love, it, there's, there's nothing. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about love today. And we're going to another primary standout love passage in the Bible. It's 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. So why don't we go ahead and all stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Starting with verse 7. for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will, ha- we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, and he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, there's a whole lot here, but the the key idea, I think, is expressed in verse 7 and verse 21. These are kind of bookends to this whole section, and they're essentially saying the same thing. We need to love one another. We need to love the brothers. We need to love the people in the family of God. And and what we find here in this passage is that John is essentially reiterating themes that he's touched on earlier, this great command that he's touched on earlier. For example, in 1 John three fourteen, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And so it's pretty hard if you're reading through 1 John to miss that John is real big on this command to love. But... We're not going to be focusing on the command to love. It's pretty easy to to understand. You need to love. And we talked about the nature of love last week. But what I want to do today is focus not on the command, but on the ground for the command. And we find the grounding of the command right off the bat here in verse 7. Let's read this again. Dear friends, let us love one another for... And whenever there's a for, you have to ask, what's what's the for there for? For, here's the ground. For, love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and the rest of the verse, but whoever does not love does not know God because, here's the ground, for God is love, because God is love. It's real easy to see the motivation for us loving is God's the originator of love. In in fact, he says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us, and twice he grounds specifically the reality of the command to love in the reality of God who is love. God is love, verse 8, God is love, verse 16. So we're going to be talking about God is love. Now, when I say that God is love, how do you feel about that? And some of you, you're probably thinking, well, I heard that one before. In fact, I don't. I, I would tell you, Ernest, honestly, I haven't read my Bible, but I've read the bumper stickers. And I already knew that one. Why did I come to church? You're going to tell me the things that I already know. And, you know, you're, you're kind of bored, honestly. For some of us, we hear God is love and we get a little bit concerned. And the reason is it doesn't feel safe. Because you probably know some people like I know, and they'll say, God is love, and then the very next thing out of their mouth is something that is at least moderately self-serving and patently unbiblical. So you get nervous. But here's the thing. Uh, We have not exhausted our understanding of this statement that God is love. We have not come to the end of our understanding concerning its significance And its meaning. It does not hurt for you to hear and for me to hear again and again and again that God is love. Over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, there's this really little statement, and Paul says, To write to you the same things is not any trouble. It's no trouble for me, and it is safe for you. I love that passage, and I have to go to it every once in a while, especially around Christmas and Easter when everybody knows what's coming. It's okay to be talking about the same things. In fact, in case you haven't noticed, we do the same thing every Sunday. When, when, when we're here, I'm going to the Bible. We're pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's the solution for everything. If you've already figured out every Sunday we're going to give glory to Jesus, oh, you're on to me. Okay, that's what's going to happen again today because the whole Bible points to Jesus. And I don't mind being a same thing sort of pastor In the same things sort of church and so if you're looking for novelties there is this great store about two and a half blocks up from here on the square it's it's called all things kids it's all kinds of novelties in there they even serve ice cream you may want to go there but here we do the same things and it is not any trouble for me to say again and it's not any trouble for you and in fact it's safe for you to hear again and again again that God is love we want to be clear on this so here's what I want to do today I'm going to answer three basic questions concerning God is love what does God is love not mean? That's the, the first thing. What does it not mean? Then we're going to answer the question, what does it mean that God is love? And then finally, so who cares? You know, why why does it matter? So God is love, what difference does that make? So let's start at the beginning. What, what does God is love not mean? And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we have to, simply because there's so much misuse and miscommunication and mis- misconceiving going on with regards to this verse god is love so let me just start like this okay god is love does not mean that love is god in the greek word order matters and you're going to see in a little bit why word order matters but as believers we are we are worshiping the god who is love we do not worship love as our god and there's a big difference Every once in a while, you'll hear people say, out of the context of the Bible or out of the context of Christianity as a whole, they'll say, well, God is love. And here's what is commonly meant, and you'll see this in in writings and expanded statements, that what they really mean is love is God. If you know what love is, that's your God. That's all you really need to know is just love. I want to show you a real brief clip. It's going to take about two minutes, just so you know what you're missing on Sunday mornings. Uh, This is on TV every Sunday at 11 o'clock, apparently, on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And if you're not watching that, you need to because she will be the next president of the United States. And there's this little super soul Sunday that happens where she asks questions of her spiritual advisors and spiritual gurus to the nation. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. One segment is dedicated to what is your definition of God? And I want to show you people's responses and we'll kind of talk about this for a second. Let's go ahead and, and show that clip. My definition of God is the ever-present essence of love God is love everything in the creative force to me God is law I've never heard that before total God to me is mystical law because law is the nature of um, the universe it is cons- the order of things. the order it's 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 How? universal and the negotiating principle with mystical laws is prayer. That's what makes them intimate. Miracle is when God bends these laws for you. What is your definition of God? All that is, everything, everything. Breath, life, everything. I, I can't even, just get Webster's Dictionary, and throw it on the floor. <laughs> it's everything, everything. everything and God is in everything God is everything not only in is everything I I don't have a definition of God because I've never really understood that word people have different understandings of it and it's caused a great deal of uh, conflict if I had to say what would my definition of God be if I were going to use that word I would say that this universe has Layers upon layers upon layers of compassion and wisdom beyond ours. God is the evolutionary impulse of the universe. God is infinite creativity, infinite love, infinite compassion, Mm. infinite caring. I think that's a great definition. I've never heard that. And it's really, you know, everybody says something different, but I have to tell you the evolutionary impulse of the universe. That's God, yes. Okay, is it just me, or does it seem like people are just making stuff up? Uh, Now we all like okay, God is love, the ever-present essence of love, and and I like the guy because this is really smart. If the woman says ever-present essence of love, and you're sitting next to her, you just repeat it, okay? Don't chat. Yeah, yeah, God's love, you know, just it's compassion, love, kindness. That all sounds really, really good, and we kind of like that. But my question is, okay, why do I go with that? God is love or the ever-present essence of love as opposed to, you know, the, the universal mystical law. Or why not just go with God is all and he's everything, take the dictionary of Webster, throw it on the floor, and there it is. I mean, what... We hear this, and it sounds really, really good, but the reason I think it sounds good is because those words, God and love, outside of any kind of context or narrative, don't really mean much of anything. They're open to people's individual interpretations. It gets a little weird because people start thinking, well, I know what love is, so I guess I know what God is, and what do you mean by that? I don't know. And Look, I'm not hating on love. Here's the thing, though. God is love is not the same as love is God. As Christians, our motivation is not to help people bow down at the altar of love. Our hope, our motivation, our end game is to get people to bow down at the feet of Jesus, apart from whom you cannot know what love is, and you cannot know who God is. So God is love is not the same as love is God. And here's something else I think we need to be real clear on God is love does not mean that the only appropriate definition for God or the unique definition for God is love. That's not the only definition. That doesn't capture the whole of who God is. Now, I know that in our country, in fact, even around churches, there are a lot of people who just don't feel terribly motivated to learn too much about the Bible. There are some people, they've got a couple of verses memorized, and they don't even know what the references are, but here's the references. Most people have 1 John 4, 8 memorized. God is love. And the other one is Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, judge not lest ye be judged. And if we just have those two verses, we don't need the rest of the Bible because you can figure out any situation or make your way through any conundrum and it's just, it's wonderful how this works. Here's how it works. God is love, judge not lest ye be judged. And what that means is I can do whatever I want with whomever I want whenever I want to because, I mean, nobody can judge, you know, even God's going to judge and, I guess I'm just the one that figures it out and I know what love is and I just got to do what love is and and I I just do what I want because God wants me to do what I want. He wants me to be happy so I do what I want with whom I want whenever I want to. And and I know because I hear people making these kinds of uh, rationalizations all the time and here's the bottom line. That is messed up. That is incredibly messed up. And let me tell you why that's messed up. Let me give you an illustration of this. Y'all probably heard a little bit about Harvey Weinstein, you know, the Hollywood producer, started Miramax Entertainment Company, and all the allegations of abuse toward women. You know the stuff that's been in the news. I've been following this for about a month, and I think it's really interesting. People talk about, well, there's kind of this, I don't know, this sliding scale, you know, it's on this continuum, and I can't judge, and I guess, and I actually read this, I'm summarizing, well, his problem is he loved too many women, too much. And the rest of us kind of go, probably every single one of us in this room are going, wait, wait, wait. That's just wrong. That's not love. And the reason we say "That's that's not love, that's wrong, that's despicable, is because we're not thinking about just two verses. We're thinking about the whole context, the whole book, and the whole story of which the statement, God is love, is only a part. You take out the context, you take out the story, you take out the whole of the book and the words God is love just don't really mean much of anything at all. And so every once in a while I will run into, and I had this person I had conversations with on a continual basis a few years ago, God is love. And then she would talk about justifying her own particular lifestyle and her choices and all the rest and and here's what I, I tried to get across to her. And let me tell you, if on any level you would say that God revealed that God is love, please just ask God what he meant by that. That's just fair to do. In fact, when people don't ask God what God meant by that, here's what happens. It's something called the violation of the second commandment. It's something called taking God's name in vain. You empty his name and who he is of meaning, and you attach your own agenda to it, and you start leveraging God for your own purposes. And I just want you to know that's the most unloving thing that you can do to the God who has revealed himself to be love. This happens all the time because people say, well, you know, love is God. The ultimate definition of God is love, and I know what love is. And we start interpreting love in our own way, and then we say, and God's in my corner, and we're starting to leverage God for our own particular agendas because we just want to do what we want to do with whom we want to do whenever we want to do it. That is messed up. My, my point is, we got more than two verses in the Bible. We got a really, really big book. There's more than two verses. God is love, and judge not, lest you be judged. Now, some of you saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you here. God, love is not God. The only definition of God is not love, and it's certainly not a definition that I'm going to come up with." But Ernest, the Bible still says God is love. And the implication seems to be that that's his essence, or the full of his definition, because God has holiness, he has mercy, he has these other attributes, but God is love. And the implication is somehow love is God, somehow that's the whole of the definition of who God is. And and, and I want you to pause for a second and think about two things in particular. One thing I want you to think about is what theologians call the simplicity of God. Not that God is a simpleton, but what What theologians have talked about for centuries is whatever God has that is good, and of course anything that is true about God is good, he has it to the full. Whatever he has, he he owns it. It is is God, meaning he's not a compound being. God doesn't have three parts wrath, two parts justice. Five parts mercy, 12 parts love, like he's a compound being. No, whatever God has, he is because he owns it. And you say, well, I don't know that I follow that. Okay, let me direct your attention to some other realities in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are four different God is statements. One of them is right here, God is love. But then John also says earlier, God is light. Actually, Jesus in the gospel according to John says, God is spirit. So God is spirit. He is love. He is light. And light is another word that you can use for truth. And then over in Hebrews, it says God is a consuming fire. So if you say, I just think God is love. Well, then you also need to say God is a consuming fire. Well, let's not read too much into this. God is love does not mean that the only appropriate definition for God is love, and it does not mean that love, as we understand it to be, is God. So, what does it mean? Now that we know what it does not mean, it takes us a long way down the road toward understanding what this statement, God is love, what it does mean. And here's what it means. Basically, what it means is the more you get to know God who has revealed Himself in the Scripture and in history, the more you know what love is. The, the, the wrong thinking of the Levites, and what I mean like, you know, Gabriella Bernstein said, you know, God is just the, my idea, definition is the ever-present essence of love, or love is God. The, the problem is people have been thinking, here I've got love figured out, now I know what God is. And the direction that John takes is, no, you need to know who God has revealed himself to be. And when you know who God has revealed himself to be, then you'll know what love is. Because God is love. Look at the direction that John takes here in John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here's what he, he explains, if I can find this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. God says, you want to know the true nature of love? You look at me sending my son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. You want to know what love is? You see my action in history through Jesus Christ. That's how you know. The essence of love, and when you understand the essence of love, then you know me. Again, John says this over in First John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brother's. This is where the Levites get it wrong. Love is just this idea that we need to define, this concept that we need to understand. It's kind of like what I mean by Lovites. I read this recently in a letter to the editor here at the Williamson County Sun, and the guy says, we don't need to come to Jesus as Savior. We just need to follow His ethical teachings. Jesus just taught us to love because God is love. It's an idea that just generally needs to be understood. You know what the problem is with that? It's not that the Levites have too lofty an idea of love. Their idea of love is not lofty enough. God did not send into the world an idea or a concept or a vague notion about love. He sent into the world a person. And He showed us, He demonstrated to us what love is. And we don't need just a demonstration, what we actually need is a lover for our souls. But commonly, here's what what you hear, and I I hear this and I read this from time to time. People make these arguments. You know, the problem with religion, you don't need religion, you don't need a Bible, you don't need a church, you don't need, need any of that stuff because religion just divides people, makes people intolerant, and just gets in the way. Here's my religion, kindness. Here's my religion, compassion. Here's my religion, you know, just being nice to people. Look, the problem with that is you and I, we don't really just need a general idea. We don't just need a concept. We need we need a higher order reality in history that will change us. Going back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 once again, this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son. Why? That we might live through Him. We've answered the questions kind of what... What is, what is the love of God? What does God's love not mean? What does it mean? Now we're answering the question, okay, so what difference does it make? Here's the difference that it makes. We need to live through Him because if we're not living through Him, we're living through something else or someone else, and that's detrimental. Here's the deal. You probably know this. The way it just simply works in our lives is people either live through what has been done to them Or they live through what has been done for them. And they live through the lies that get spoken to them through what was done to them or through the truths of what was done for them. And the unfortunate reality is when it comes to figuring out the lens through which you look at life or the one through whom you live your life, the negative and the power of the negative far outweighs the positive, doesn't it? You say one hurtful thing, you've got to say ten nice things just to break even. So here's what happens to some people. And I, I haven't been reading your mail. I hope this doesn't get too personal. But here's, here's what happens. Somewhere along the way, your ex, your ex-husband or ex-wife or that boy or that girl or whatever, they do you wrong and you get betrayed and your heart is broken. And then consequently... Because of what was done to you, or what you think was done to you, kind of shapes you. And you start looking at the world through that particular lens. So now you're living your life through your ex. And you don't want to, but you just are. Because what has been done to you gave the enemy an opportunity to speak lies into your life about who you are and who God is and the nature of life. So you've been done wrong, you got hurt, you got damaged, someone sinned against you. Or maybe it wasn't somebody that hurt you, it was a loss that you experienced. This last week was a little bit tough. We had four funerals in a period of seven days. And then my aunt Maggie, you know, she's basically in the process right now of dying. You know, I don't remember being in the church where we had that many funerals in such a short period of time. So you have a loss. And here's this person, this mom. Or this daughter or this friend or this classmate and they die and and all of a sudden there's this tremendous loss in this hole and you're experiencing the devastation. It's hard to not start interpreting your life through the loss of him or through the loss of her. Or maybe it wasn't him or her or them, maybe you did something to you. Maybe the thing that devastated you was you because you did the sin that you thought you never were going to do. You did what you thought was unthinkable, but you did it, and now you are trapped, and you're trapped in the self-concealing and the self-hiding that comes from the guilt and the self-loathing. So however it is, we have this tendency to live through what was done to us or what's been done for us, and the lies or the truths that have been spoken in light of what's been done to us or for us. But this stuff over here is really powerful. So if we want to be set free from the bondage in our lives, it's going to take a whole lot more than some well-meaning but purely sentimental thoughts about love in general. You know what you need, what I need? We need a lover to our souls We need someone to do for us in a very high order, concrete way what we cannot do for ourselves in a way that is so powerful it will set us free from all of these bondages. Simple abstract ideas about the ever-present essence of love is not going to be sufficient. You need and I need somebody to do for us something extraordinary and powerful so that we're not living through him or her or them or even our own past, but that we're living through him. This isn't just, you know, oh, these are philosophical thoughts, and this is all important, and, you know, God is love. That just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. No, this is life because, again, this is how God demonstrated His love among us. He sent His Son into the world. Why? So that we could live through Him. And that's the only one through whom to live. If you want freedom and you want joy, you want anything other than bondage to the things that were done to you. I'm so glad that God did not send into this world an abstract idea or a general feeling or, you know, an ill-defined notion. He sent His Son. This is why it doesn't hurt to hear again and again and to say again and again the things that we say every Sunday. Because the more you study the Bible that points to Jesus Christ, the more you see God's activity in history, the more you're healed the more you're liberated and the more you are in a pit position to be the person you know you need to be, which is someone who loves. But we don't love unless God first loves us. We cannot give to others what we have not received. We are not in a position to do for others with authenticity until we have had a love bestowed upon us. Something has been done for us and has been received. The Levites have it all wrong. It's not just a problem of authority. You know... God is love. Okay, well, on whose authority are you saying this? There's a problem there. If you say, well, nobody has the authority, and here's what I think, what you're really admitting is, I'm just making this up. I mean, this is personal preference, and no offense to anybody intended, but you may prefer chocolate ice cream. I may prefer vanilla. The person next to you may feel, you know, personally prefer, I don't know, mint chocolate chip, but your preferences don't change anybody else's life. We all like the idea that God is love, but who gets to define it? As for me, I think it's a great idea to let the one who tells us about love or says that God is love define for us what God is love means. And he defines it for us right here in this very chapter where he tells us what it is. He says, if you want to know what love is, look at my son on the cross dying for you. Look at my activity in history. And that is exactly what we need because nothing else has the transforming power other than God doing for us something in history that we had to have done. And this is, by the way, why we read the Bible. It's not just that we're studying up for final exams. Ha, 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 It's not so we can be smarter than somebody else. It's not so I know something you don't know. The more you're into the Bible, the more you're involved in other people's lives, you're involved in the Bible, the more and more your knowledge of God is growing, and the more your knowledge of God grows and your place in this world grows, the more you understand and are thereby empowered to love Because God is love is the root of us doing what it is that we need to do. Now next week, I'm going to talk some more about what it means to bestow love on someone else and why it's so important to have that love lavished on us. But just real quickly in answering the question, so does this make any difference? I want to give you an illustration from history that I think is really kind of helpful. John in 1 John says all kinds of wonderful things, and I, I love this verse. He says, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And have you ever wondered, John, when you're writing all this stuff, that are you just writing this because it sounds good? Or how have you seen this work out in your own life? Well, I want to give you a story from history that, that will, I don't know, give some context, some depth to John. There's this historian by the name of Eusebius. He was born around 260 A.D. Some people say A.D. 265. He is deemed to be the first church historian. And he tells us this story, he preserves a story about John as a minister in his old age. And it's not in the Bible, but that doesn't mean it's not history. This is regarded to, has, to have actually happened. John, as an old man, has won this younger man to Christ. And he's been pouring his life into him, discipling this young man. John, as the apostle, has to travel around. So he takes off, and it, but before he takes off on his journey, he tells the bishop of the town, you watch over these, this young man. And when I get back, I'll start discipling him once again. So John takes off, comes back, asks the bishop of the town what has happened to this young man. And the bishop says, he's dead. And John says, what do you mean he's dead? And the bishop says, well, he's dead to God. He's fallen back in with his old friends. In fact, he's living a life of crime. He's in this band of robbers, one of the leaders of the robbers. And he's beyond God's help because he's up in the mountains. And if you go even into the mountains, if just just go up there. If you start getting close to their hideout, they'll capture you, they'll kill you. To go into the mountains is death. He's dead to God. John, John, the apostle, upon hearing this, as an old man, just rips his clothes as a sign of anguish. And he shouts out to someone, you give me my horse. Bring me a horse. So someone brings him a horse. And here's old man John on the back of the horse riding up into the mountains to the place of death. He goes up there and sure enough... The lookouts for this band of robbers sees him. They come, they capture him and said, this is fine. I want to be captured. I want to be taken to your leaders. Take me to your seat of judgment. So they take John to the leaders of this band of robbers. And sure enough, one of those guys is the person John has been discipling. And upon recognizing John, this young man starts running in the opposite direction, even though he's armed. And John, old man John, I don't know how to picture this. I, don't, I think John probably looked like Mac Bynum. But uh, John just starts running after the young man. And John is yelling after this young man, Why are you running? I'm an old man. I'm unarmed. Can, I, can you not see that your life is not beyond hope? I will gladly exchange my life for yours. I will die a death for you like Jesus died a death for us. Stop, listen, trust me. And at a certain point, this young man hears old John running after him and crying out to him. And the man stops. The young man stops. He throws his weapons aside. And trembling, he breaks down and begins to weep bitterly. And he comes back to John and he comes back to God. And if I were there and if you were there, you might be wondering, okay, John, wow, where did you get the power? Where do you get this kind of freedom? How do you love with this kind of radical conviction and courage and abandon and life? And John gives us the answer right here in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, I have fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 4, I've been born of God. I know God. You see, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because God is love. This is the difference that God's love makes. And when you get to a point in your life where you're so convinced that God is love and you've become to understand better what that means and when you actually get to a point in your life where you give your life to this God who is love as the ultimate lover of your life, you start living through Him. Not through them, not through her, not through him, not through your past mistakes. You start living through him and everything changes. More on this next week, but for now let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. God, we just say thank you for loving us the way that you do and for revealing to us through your actions in history for us the nature of your love. And Lord, I pray that we will become all the more convinced of the reality of you and the reality of your actions so that your love will take control of our hearts and that we will live our lives through no one other than you. What a joy to know that we can be liberated from the things that have bound us and be set free in Christ Jesus, the lover of our souls. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give us these commands to love and then trust that we're going to grit our teeth and just try better as if we could somehow muster up the love that we need to show to other people. That was never your intent to guilt us into doing what we should. You want to liberate us, bestowing upon us what we need, and you've bestowed it upon us. You have lavished us with your love in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, uh, we don't get tired of saying the same thing and hearing the same thing over and over and over again because we know you liberate us like no one could because you are love. And if there are any here this morning that have not stepped into a relationship with you that are bound by him or her or them or their own past or whatever the case is of the loss... Lord, I pray that you would grant them the ability to turn to you and receive what it is that you want to bestow on them, which is perfect love, demonstrated of the cross. And so, Father, if there are any here this morning, just enable them to say to you, to turn to you if they have not so far, just saying, Lord, I know I've sinned. I I know I've fallen short. I know I've done wrong. I've been wronged. I've done wrong. I've experienced life. I've, I've, I've believed lies because of all the things done to me and I, I'm tired of living in bondage. And I know I've sinned and I, but I know I have a Savior. I know I have a lover of my soul and His name is Jesus Christ and He came and He died on the cross so that my sins would be covered. So Lord, I turn to You. God, I turn to Christ as my Savior. And Lord, thank You for saving me. Thank You for loving me the way You have. And Lord, I just want to live the rest of my life I'm not trying to earn Your love but I want to live the rest of my life in light of the fact that You loved me like no one else ever has. Thank You for saving me. In Jesus' name, Amen.